for this text in Ephesians chapter 1. If you don't have sermon notes, they're in the bulletin or the ushers can hand those to you. But what happens in this text? Do we have our screen here? Here we go. Yes, no. Let me get started anyway. In this text, it's talking about the greatness and the majesty of God Almighty. It reminds me of a true account that happened back in 1912 when the Titanic went down. You're all familiar with the story. 1,500 people lost their lives. Right after that, people gathered at the White Star Lines trying to figure out exactly what had happened to their friends, their relatives. People wanted to know, you know, have they survived? What's going on? And so what they did is they set up a huge chalkboard outside that, uh, that facility, and as they got information, they got names, they would write on there the names of the individuals and what had happened to them so family and friends could know. And on that chalkboard that they had, they had two columns. They had one column, those saved, and then the other column was those lost. The Scriptures does the same thing. It itemizes the individuals in one of two categories, those who are saved and those who are lost. We read in Scriptures about other terms that are given, like believers or non-believers. We read about terms about being born again or being damned. We read terms like redeemed or condemned. We read terms in Scripture describing those who have eternal life and those who are separated from God, who are at enmity with God. We have the phrase about those who are in Christ several times in Ephesians chapter 1. And then we have those who are far from Christ mentioned in chapter 2. We have the idea of putting faith in Christ and then the idea of those who trust in themselves, trust in their church, trust in their baptism. But it all comes down that you're either in one of two categories, and if you're in the first category, the one on the left, then you have special benefits. You have special blessings, and for that reason, Paul writes this text and says we ought to magnify the great God. We ought to glorify Him. He kind of compares it like you taking a job. Some of you get a different offer. Some of you, because of your skills, you should be offered a whole lot of jobs. But the reason that you might take some and deny another is because of the benefit package, because of what they are offering you, what comes with it, the hours, the vacation, all those things. Well, let me show you from Scriptures a benefit package that comes with becoming a believer. What do we get out of it? What does God give to us with us coming and putting our faith in Jesus Christ? There are many different benefits, but there are several mentioned in Ephesians 1. Just highlighting those just real quickly. In this text in Ephesians 1, it's a lengthy uh, sentence, one sentence, from verses 3 through 14. In this text, he's talking about all the spiritual blessings. And look at verse 3. He talks about who God who has blessed us with all blessings, the spiritual blessings in the heavenly places. And when he starts listing off some of the reasons we ought to praise God and give Him glory, he lists off, here are some of those benefits that we get. One of them is real simple. We become part of God's program. If you look at the passage, he makes and opens up a conversation that we don't have time to go in depth. But he says in verse 4, according as he has chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame. The idea is that God in eternity past looked and saw who you were, what you would do. God knew what you would do. God had an idea that you who would come put your faith in Jesus Christ, you would become one of his children. And God is totally aware of who chooses. And he calls upon them yet to be able to make their own decision. Knowing doesn't mean he forces. But what he does is he says, you need to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. You need to call upon the Lord. Multiple passages that say, please put your personal faith in Jesus Christ. 
And God knows whether you're going to respond or not. And God has looked and said, okay, for those of you who are responding, I have determined certain things for you. I have decided that you would become a part of my program with all of these blessings. If I can illustrate it this way. Some of you grew up in homes where all of a sudden your family had this business. Your parents thought that from the day you were born, they are going to help you to be successful. They are going to determine, they have predetermined in their mind, that you are going to be able to take over the business. So for years they've been preparing. They've been planning. They give you skill sets. They give you experiences. They offer to buy the education. They even say to you, we will give you the tools. We'll give you the equipment. We'll give you our customers. All with the idea of making you successful. And they're planning that, they're preparing it. And yet they, in their, in their finite knowledge, don't know the final result. But they want to make this offer. They want to make you successful. You still have choice. You can say no, you can say yes. But they have already planned all this for you and prepared it. God knows your choice. God knows and has planned and prepared to make you successful. And he has predetermined or pre, predestinated certain things for you to become successful, to be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. Predetermined that you should be fruitful in your life. Predetermined that he wants you and he has prepared and planned and put all the skill sets necessary for you to live a holy and blameless life. So you who, are gotten, who have gotten born again, you've become part of this program of God where he has given the opportunities and the abilities and all that is needed to become successful in walking with him. What a blessing. What a benefit that God through his, through his graciousness has given us purpose in life. Through his graciousness has given us power to be able to live out those lives. For that we ought to give glory to the great God. But he gives a second benefit. In this text, if you jump down into verse 5, that he has determined and planned that you should have the adoption of children. You have to understand in that day, in the ancient days, just because you were born in the family didn't make you legal heir. We run into that in America. There's all kinds of plans and there's all kinds of laws in place. But in Bible days, they didn't have those laws in place. You weren't automatically the heir to your parents' fortune. They would have to adopt you. They would have to go through a step where they would make you the legal child, even though you might be the biological child. Or because they didn't like how you conducted yourself, they might choose somebody else to become the adopted child, to become the legal heir. So in this text, he's talking about the idea that those who are legally adopted, when they put their faith in Christ, they become the heirs. And as such, they get better benefits. Back in Bible days, if you were living in the house, but you're not yet adopted, you were on the same level as the slaves. You probably wouldn't eat with your parents. You would probably be in the other region of the house. But once you're adopted, you get to come to the main table. You get to be at the big people's table. You get to be at the individual who can have this intimate conversations. Well, in this text, he's talking spiritually. That's what God's done for you. Those of you who have been born again, you have been adopted into God's family. You are all of a sudden, you have this legal, a legal relationship with God Almighty. He is your parent, and as such, you have the benefit of having the high position, the intimate position of being able to walk with him and talk with him and have all of his spiritual blessings guaranteed to you. The text 
Paul writes about it in Romans, that same idea about what the benefit of being adopted is. He says, for you believers have not received the spirit, excuse the typing, the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption, so you have an intimate relationship and can say, Abba or Daddy Father. He talks about that idea that we are the legal children of God. The Spirit of God has elevated us to that point when we put faith in Jesus Christ. However, he talks in the same text of Ephesians, he talks about those who have not become saved, those who are still lost, those who are unbelievers. He calls them, he says, you're not the child of God. You're a child of disobedience. That is the characteristic. In fact, he says, you're a child of wrath. This is what's going to come upon you. That you are the one, this is what you're going to inherit unless you're adopted by God. You're going to inherit the wrath of God that falls upon those who are unbelievers. So we read in Scripture that Jesus Jesus and others have been very, very careful to say, you and I need to be adopted by God. We need to become his children or we fall into the category of children of the devil, the condemned ones, the children of wrath. Have you ever yet become a believer in Jesus Christ? If you do, there's a third benefit. You become God's property. In the passage, he says, as he goes through, he says down in, in, the, in the praise, the glory of God, verse 6, he says, wherein we have been accepted in the beloved in whom, that's Jesus Christ, in whom we have redemption. And he uses a term that they would understand. In Bible days, you as a merchant would go out and buy things to turn around to sell. And so they would call that agorazo. But in this text, he uses one of the strongest terms that was limited to a certain usage. You, going down, you would see somebody on the slave market, somebody down there, one of the six million in the empire, or some relative who hasn't paid their credit card bills. They're running behind. Therefore, they go to, at those days, a debtor's prison. They can't get out unless somebody redeems them, unless somebody lutros them. Somebody goes and pays their debt. Somebody buys them off the auction block so as to take over, take an ownership, and or give them freedom. And that's what this text is talking about. It is saying that God in His grace and in His goodness, He came along and what God did, God wanted to pay your debt. God wanted to give the price. Now, how much are you worth? How much would they have to pay? There are studies that say if we take the chemical makeup and the physical makeup of your body, how much are you worth this morning? A lot? Here's one study, one study that says in this one study, it says that you are worth the average American build size weight. So some of us are worth a whole lot more, okay? <laughs> but the average person in America right now is worth $6 million, okay? Now, I don't care what you say, but you don't need to have a TV program about you because you're already $6 million. There's another study that says this way, you're worth $45 million, now, take that to the bank and get, into, get a loan off that. Try it and see what happens. But the point is, you're worth an awful lot. Now, to God, you're worth a whole lot more. And so what God did in this text, illustrating spiritual truth, God said, here's what's the deal. You and I have a sin problem. That sin problem, every one of us has. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. God says, because of that sin that's in your life, it naturally expands. It's a cancer that spreads. It's an infection that gets in all areas of your life that basically all of a sudden it takes over your life. 
We don't have to teach children to lose their temper. We don't have to teach them to be selfish. We have to teach them to stop. And sometimes when that selfishness takes over, man, it just compounds itself. And so in this text, we're learning that God wanted to redeem you from that. Because there is a penalty. The penalty is the wages. The payment for your sin, which was death. Christ comes along, and through him, in whom we have redemption, Jesus is the one that redeems us from that sin problem. He's the only one. There's no mention of some other preacher. There's no mention of church. There's no mention of baptism. It is Jesus. It is He. He's the one that paid our debt sin. In fact, Paul writes about this more in, in depth in other passages that are parallel. Talks about Jesus Christ who gave His life to deliver us from sin. Talks about Jesus becoming the curse, taking the penalty, becoming damned and rejected by God the Father so you and I could be redeemed. The passages talk about He delivering us, freeing us from the darkness that was in our life so that we could have redemption through His blood. We have text after text that talks about Jesus delivering us. It's Jesus the one who saves. It's more than just a sign. It's Jesus' act of grace to us. And when we become a believer, when we put our faith in Him, we are become God's property. He purchases us from the penalty of sin. He frees us from the debtor's prison. He takes us off the auction block. And He has paid for us so that you and I become His property. That He makes us His valued possession. That's amazing. That God would care enough about you that he would pay more than $45 million for you to be redeemed. That God considered you such a commodity that Jesus Christ died for you to make you his property, to spare you from condemnation. What grace, what goodness, what mercy that he showed upon us. I told a story back on Christmas Eve that some of you didn't hear about an individual who was going along and as he was going through a garage sale somewhere in the Midwest, and the story you can find it in books, multiple books that talks about this individual goes to this garage sale and there's a fellow there, an old man in, the, in there, and the old man is selling things off. He's saying he and his wife need to scale down, they need to go to an apartment complex, can't handle the house anymore, so they're getting rid of everything. And so the man was looking through all the stuff and he saw over here in the garage something covered up by, by a tarp and so he thought he recognized the shape, like a bike or something like that. So he went over there and pulled it back and it was an old beat up Harley Davidson motorcycle. He came out and he said to the old man, he said, he's selling the bike and the man said, I wasn't planning on it but I don't think I can take it to the apartment. My wife won't let me. So I guess I got to get rid of it. He said, well, what would you take for it? And he says, well, I don't know, it's ever since I got it, the engine's been seized up and it's kind of, I've, I planned on buying it, fixing it, restoring it, and never got around to it. And I don't know what you can do with it. Well, the man who was shopping thought, well, you know, if that's an old bike, I could probably sell the parts for a few bucks. The man sitting in the chair said, well, give me $35. Okay, 35 bucks, I'll sell it, to, you know, I'll buy it. So he came a couple days later, got the bike, took it home, and it sat in his garage for weeks and months. It never happens to us. But it sat in his garage with all kinds of plans and intents to get to it one day. Finally, after several months, he thought, well, I'm going to get to it. I'm going to go and call the Harley-Davidson place and find out how much would it cost for some of the, like the engine parts to get it restored. So he called the local Harley-Davidson shop. He's talking to the guy, and the guy says, you know what? Um, 
if you could get me the serial number, I could probably give you a better price because kind of with what you're giving me and the age of it, I don't know. He says, give, get the serial. So he went out, he got the serial number, came back, called the guy back at the parts place, gave him the serial number, and the guy says, okay, I'll look it up, I'll call you back in a few minutes. And um, he didn't hear back. Finally, after a day, the guy calls back and the guy says, could you give me that serial number again? And he sounds real tense. He says, can you give me the serial number again? He says, yeah. Gave him the serial number. He says, can you give me your name, address, and number? I guess. Gave him all that. He says, I'll have somebody get back to you. And he hung up. The man buying the bike, his name is Bob. Bob is thinking to himself, maybe I shouldn't have given him all my information. Maybe it's a stolen bike. Maybe it was in a criminal activity. And now I've got the bike and I'm in trouble. I shouldn't have given. So two, three days go by. No, nothing. Doesn't hear anything. And about the time that he's not thinking about it anymore, he gets a phone call. This time it's this cheery voice just representing Harley-Davidson Motor Company from, you know, main office in York. And I'm calling and uh, would you do me a favor? Would you go out to the bike and would you take the seat off and look under the seat to see if there's anything inscribed there, scratched in the metal? I guess. So he went out and took off the seat and he saw letters K-I-N-G. Went back and he told the guy, you know, called him back and told the guy and the guy says, Sir, I am authorized to give you $300,000 right now for the bike. $35, $300,000? And he says, I don't understand. He says, well, that bike was sold to the king. Anybody know who I'm talking about? Okay, okay. Oops, let me back up. Okay, uh, that's an individual that, which way did I go here? Okay, that's an individual that if you don't know this guy, okay, go home and ask. <laughs> Check it on, you might find him on Google. Okay. All of a sudden, he says, man, I, I don't know, 300,000. He sat down, he says, I'll have to think about it. The next day, he gets a phone call from Jay Leno. Jay Leno collects things. $500,000 offer. What made that bike so valuable? It's not the condition of the bike. It's the ownership. What makes you so valuable? It's not you. Uh, sorry. <laughs> I meant to say, it's not me. Okay. It just came out quick. It's not us. It's not what we do. It's not what we are. What makes us valuable? We're God's property. When we become a believer, we become God's property. When we become a believer, he involves us in his program so we can live and conform to Christ. When we become a believer, he becomes our parent. When we become a believer, we become his property. When we become a believer, we get a full pardon. We get, I would like a pardon when I speed and get pulled, I mean, if I were to speed and get pulled over. I would like an immediate pardon. Well, in this passage, it talks about it. It says that in whom we have redemption, and along with the redemption comes what? The forgiveness of, yeah. You know what that word is? That word means to send away. Do you remember where it comes from? In the Old Testament, when they were doing their worship services, they would, at the Day of Atonement, they would gather together on Yom Kippur and they would take two goats. 
And they would take one of those goats, blameless, spotless goats, unblemished. They'd cut, their, they'd cut the one's neck, take the blood, and they would sprinkle the blood on the altar, and they would use it as a covering for their sins that they're confessing in a ceremony. Do you remember what they did with the other goat? The priest, as the representative, would lay his hands upon the goat, and they would make confession of their sins. And then they would take that goat and they would lead the goat out, especially during the wilderness, they, it was easy for them, lead the goat out and let the goat go off into the wilderness with the a picture and the idea that as that scapegoat was getting away, he was carrying away their sins. That God would take that sin away from the people and they would never bring it up again. Like in the Bible where it says, he casts our, our sins into the where? the depths of the ocean, and he would remember them more, no more. He would take our sins and put them as far as the east is from the... We have that type of pardon from God Almighty. When we become a believer, Jesus Christ, he, get, he, he takes my sins away. That when I say, oh man, Drew... Uh, I remember when I did that again, God would, if he could speak and would speak, he'd say, I don't remember that because it's done. It's over with. What a blessing to know that according to the grace of Jesus Christ, I am fully pardoned for all my sins I have ever done. And he's not going to bring them up when I get to heaven. That's a joy. That's a praise. We have the blessings. Not only of that, but God's promises. As he goes through this text, he says, hey, listen, God promises, God promises. Now, you and I hear lots of promises from people. In fact, there's certain groups of people that when they open their mouth, we go, oh, yeah, they're lying. Okay? We think that. Some of you have such horrible experiences with family, some relatives, you think that about some relative when they opened up their mouth to you. But when God opens his mouth, our God never lies. Our God never tricks us. Our God does exactly what he said because he is faithful. He is holy. And what has God promised us? In this text, Paul says God has promised us something. God has promised us, he says in verse 11, where he makes the comment, in whom also we have, and by the way, it's aorist tense, we have already obtained an inheritance. It's already a done deal. That inheritance is so, is so certain that he gives us the down payments. He gives us a promise. It, it, it's showing up later in the passage where he says and he talks about how God should be glorified because God has given us what, what just guarantees it. In whom you also trusted after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom you were sealed. Sealed. We, we have the idea of you were branded. You were all of a sudden like the wax seal over, over the tomb. All of a sudden it's secured. Nothing can get in. It belongs. It's a sense of ownership. God has sealed you. And then God has also given you something. He's given you an Erebon, an, an engagement ring in modern days. He's given a commitment to you. He's given you something that is of a promise and it's real and it's good. And he hasn't given a cheap one like I gave Deb. I didn't think it was cheap, but when we stood over Niagara Falls and the ring popped out, you know, the, I'm sorry, the diamond popped out, it was pretty cheap. I thought Cracker Jacks were better than that, you know, the, the thing. 
the ring that God gives us, the seal that God, the, the promise, the down payment is the Holy Spirit. And God's not going to deny His Spirit. Do you realize how much you have? When you became a believer, you have all these benefits. You have all of these blessings that come along with it. But you have, you have been given by grace some great gifts of God. By the way, when he gave you those benefits, all of a sudden he's given you a new identity. Maybe I want to change it and make it sound like this. You know, that you are a person that nobody will confuse. Uh, George Ashley, not our George Ashby, but George Ashley is a pastor out in a church in California. And he said he was helping a sister church. He and his wife showed up. They were doing a kids program. His kids were involved with their program all week. And this night they were going to have a kids night out. So he came early to give those people a hand, getting the, the waters and the things all prepared and all ready. And he said then while he was helping out there before they took off on this picnic as a group, he walked back over. There was the church playground. He saw his wife sitting on a bench. Her back was to him. So he walked up to her and he starting to rub her shoulders while they're watching their kids play over there. He says, I'm rubbing her shoulders and patting her, you know, on the side. And all of a sudden, he looks across and he says, there on the bench, straight across from him, is his wife giving him the evil eye. <laughs> he said, I apologize profusely. And I never mentioned I was a pastor. But he apologized <laughs> profusely. There is no mistaken identity when it comes to you and God. When you become God's child, you all of a sudden get a new identity. You're a predestinated one. You're an individual who's been adopted. You're an individual who's been purchased. When it comes between you and God, there's, there's no mistake. You, he's going to look and he's not going to mix you up with somebody else. You're pardoned. When you become a believer, you're a promised one. This is all yours. This is a definitive thing that God gives a benefit to those who become believers. But if you choose not to become a believer, he says, this is the identity you have. You are an individual who is dead in sins. You have no hope, he says in this text. You're without God. He says, you are far off from the Lord. You are an enmity with God. The bottom line is your choice. When we, when we think about back in the 1912 disaster, those 1,500 people didn't have a choice when the ship was going down. The warning came. It was too late. They could try to get on the rescue ship, but 1,500 of them didn't make it. But you have a choice. The warning is given out that you need to be a believer in Jesus Christ or else you're damned, you're doomed. You choose. You have to decide. And when you look at the benefit package, if you have yet to accept it, this is the time to accept Christ. If you have already accepted that benefit package, then this text says you should be praising God. In fact, throughout this, ver this one verse, this one sentence, excuse me, he talks about giving God praise, giving God praise, giving God praise. Jeremy, I really appreciate the choice of selection of songs, that they were so God-focused in giving him praise. Tremendous, tremendous. That should be where our hearts are right now. Giving God praise. And we want to do that as we wrap up our service to give God praise.